Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to an FS Club seven, seminar today. And today we're going to be chatting about climate and COVID-19. How interesting, two large areas of risk that have been staring us in the face for ages. Uh, one is clear, clearly dominating uh, discussions, that's COVID-19, uh, but climate is there long-term and even more serious if we don't get it right. And who better to help us today than Sean Kidney. Uh, next slide, Simon. Um, I'd like to thank um, all of our sponsors in the FS Club. Without you, this wouldn't be possible. And I know that many of you are committed environmentalists and working hard on ways, either through financial or technological means, uh, to try and reduce the impact of mankind on the planet, in particular with regard to carbon. Now, today's agenda is fairly straightforward. After I get off the line, uh, we're going to be joined by Sean Kidney. Sean's going to be joining us in voice-only mode today, but he does have a tremendous amount to say and some slides to cover. Uh, just before he begins, I think I'd just like to make two points. We at Xi'an run uh, the Global Financial Centers Index, but we also run the Global Green Finance Index. And in this, we notice probably two points, I think, that might just help shape discussion and hopefully your questions later. The first point is what are the key drivers in green finance? Well, you might say that there could be a tremendous number of things that ought to be driving green finance. But in truth, what this diagram shows is that policy and regulatory frameworks, uh, the issue of climate change, and investor demand are the things that really drive it. And this is what, sadly, distinguishes green finance from regular finance, an enormous dependence on policy, which in turn is being driven by consumer and business awareness, as opposed to deeper economic issues. The second thing that I'd like to point out is the dominance of green bonds in the market. Now, Sean and I have known each other for many years, a couple of decades or more, and I'm absolutely thrilled and pleased with the success that his Climate Bonds Initiative has had. But what we also ought to be looking at is why is the success of green bonds not really being picked up in a number of other obvious places? So, for example, carbon disclosure, climate stress testing, disinvestment, energy efficiency, green tech venture capital or natural capital evaluation. Green bonds do dominate the market. And we're going to be looking very carefully today at what happens post COVID-19. And while you can read his CV on the site, we are absolutely delighted to have arguably the world's leading expert in this space, Sean Kidney, the Chief Executive Officer of the Climate Bonds Initiative. Over to you, Sean. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Um, Simon, if I can pile into the slides, that'll be just to get going. I'm going to talk a little bit today about where we get to in the thematic market story with green bonds uh, currently. Uh, in, and I'm talking about that from the midst of the, of the depth of the crisis still in the US and in uh, the UK. You know, we are going to need to look at recovery. There's a strong narrative in Europe now about the need to ensure that recovery is green. It's not only in Europe. 
It's a discussion going underway in China as well, in ASEAN countries as well. How do we ensure that this massive rebuilding stimulus that we are going to have to actually make work now is consistent with achieving the kind of future we want to get to? And it doesn't mean it's clear. There's still a lot of work to be done on finishing off this discussion and making sure that it works the right kind of way. And of course, in many places, winning the argument. This is an argument that is going exactly the reverse direction in the US, in Turkey, and a couple of other places. There's another thing that's happening in this crisis though, which is an appreciation of the extent to which this is likely to be the first of many. The International Panel of Climate Change and the World uh, Health Organization have been saying for many years now that the real challenge of the 21st century will be a century of climate volatility. Uh, we need to understand that we've already, if you like, lost the first half of the fight against climate change. We will see significant climate dislocation. We're seeing it already. I won't go over the detail of the last couple of years. That will lead to floods, to storms, to droughts, to famines, and according to the IPCC Health Committee, pandemics. We will look back and most likely see this as the first of many this century. As we see environmental degradation, the collapse of ecosystems in different places, we see pathogens jumping between species. That's what we're currently experiencing, the effect of that. And in fact, in the last week, we've seen a number of articles starting to say from different science groups that this should be regarded as a climate crisis in the sense that it's very clear that where the pathogens came from is in an area of extreme environmental degradation. This is a species jumping, a pathogens jumping between species story, and it's useful for us to understand that. As we rebuild, we mustn't rebuild on the basis that we will not have this again. We must rebuild on the basis that the learnings from this particular crisis will need to be applied again and again and again this century. That includes everything from our health system and how we build redundancy or greater resilience, ability to be able to deal with shocks, to our social protection measures that we have been pioneering in this particular crisis, the, everything from helicopter money in the US to um, furloughs in the UK and so on. And also looking at the other issues around resilience in the cases of shock that we have to start addressing. Supply chain resilience isn't just a matter of ensuring you can manufacture masks close by. It's also a matter of looking at what are the critical pieces of the economy that we need to be able to draw on locally if we're going to ensure our local economies can keep working, our local support systems, if we have more of these crises coming through. What can we learn from this particular system? I want to be clear, I'm not talking about a rollback of globalization or specialization that I think has served the world enormously well in the last century in terms of specialization and wealth creation. I'm talking about, like anything, looking at the critical issues that you need to make sure you can address at hand whilst you're still over a longer time frame, reaping the rewards of the global specialization that has been a characteristic of the modern age. So I need to, uh, I need to now take you into some of the background to all of this. Um, Simon, we seem to have a loss of all the slides. If you can address that at the moment, I will just keep talking. Uh, they're not in the deck that I'm 
seeing in front of me. Ah, thank you. So I now appreciate it. So in the context, some context first. In the last few years, we've seen a few things happen which help provide us some hope for where we're going. One is that we've seen uh, ESG, environmental, social and governance issues, go global. There is a growing appreciation, if I can frame it in these terms, that understanding the future when it comes to the financial sector, when it comes to sustainability of returns, is not as simple as looking at the credit rating or the immediate past history. We need to start looking at other factors. Of course, this is tied very directly to the growth of institutional investment capital, which has both some short-term horizon focuses, but also a long-term mandate or regulatory mandate to match assets and liabilities. That changes the character of thinking when you're an actuary. You're looking 40 years out, even though your portfolio manager is only looking three to five years out. This is leading to some new markets and new approaches globally. In Japan, we've seen the extraordinary impact of a major shift to ESG by GPIF, the government pension fund, over the last five years, which is rippling through Japanese society in terms of disclosure requirements from companies that simply were not there before, but also in terms of a, a growing appreciation of other factors from uh, social issues, from environmental issues. Japan's uh, GPIF has built up a large green bond portfolio, but that's not the only thing they're doing in the environment. And then, of course, the insistence on better governance, which is a challenge in many economies. We've also seen a growing appreciation of climate change arising from the Paris Agreement when we had the sense that perhaps countries were actually going to act. We've had a growing uh, concern about transition risk. That is, governments will act, we will have to react. How do we get ahead of those actions? How do we even figure out when they're going to act in the context of volatile domestic politics? But you'll find now amongst institutional investors, at least, a certainty that action is coming. It's a time frame issue and it's understanding what kind of action. We've already seen some examples. Whilst we celebrate in climate change activist circles, the astounding reduction in price of solar over the last 20 years, what perhaps isn't fully understood is that this isn't a function of innovative R&D. This has been driven by volume purchasing generated by policy. In, you can trace the cost curve reductions uh, dramatic start from the German solar feeding tariff brought in in 2001 and the volume contracting of solar that arose out of that. China then picked that up a few years later. So China has been letting vast contracts for solar, which has essentially supported domestic industry at scale. And it's that scale which has driven the cost down and continues to drive the cost down to the benefit of everyone else in the world. We're beginning to see this with electric vehicles, where the extent of which China's commitment to creating an electric vehicle industry that is a global champion means that first subsidies and now procurement rules, including a bit of a quiet pushing around of state auto companies on the side, has led to a rapid growth of electric vehicles and we see the cost curve dropping quite quickly. I read a prediction yesterday from Bloomberg, which was saying that on the basis of the increasing scale of electric vehicle commissioning and purchasing generated by state policies, and other factors, we expect to see the cost of electric vehicles on a CapEx basis get lower than petrol cars by 2023 or 2024. 
they're already cheaper for an OPEX basis. So if you're in a fleet, they're a live alternative. And that'll of course have profound impacts for global fossil fuel industries. 60% of all oil is used in transport, a large chunk in cars and cities. If that fleet starts shifting to electric very quickly on the basis of price, then at the very minimum, the demand growth disappears. It's already disappeared in rich countries, but not in emerging markets. Demand starts declining, and we may, say, may see an extended period of low uh, profitability for oil companies and low demand. So these are risks. I'm not saying anything is this certain. I'm saying that there's a growing appreciation of the risks that might be involved in governments acting on their environmental and policy targets. Of course, in Europe, we now have a, a commission having signed up to 2050 net zero targets, to a green deal, and the European member states are about to ink an agreement for 50% emissions reductions by 2030, which will be the first government, that I'm aware of at least, that has taken up the IPCC 1.5 degree report of 2018 and said, we're going to do this. Uh, that's part of the work that um, I've been working on at the Brussels in the last few years, how to do this. UN Sustainable Development Goals have also been a very important development in the last few years. I'm going to put them here in a particular context. When you understand the risk to addressing climate change, the risks of in impacts of climate change, and by that I'm talking about the potential for collapsed societies, the potential for economic damage from famines and, and other kinds of environmental incidents, you realise that the resilience of societies starts becoming a critical factor going forward. I mentioned we're going through a test case for resilience now of a certain kind. There'll be other things. Syria can be regarded as an imploded economy thanks to two big climate change shocks. In 2006, 2007, two years of extreme heat intensity and aridity in the Syrian countryside sent one and a half to two million people fleeing into the cities. Poor Sunnis. They were not well treated by the government. In 2010, we saw the collapse of the Russian wheat crop again for extended incidences of heat. Russia banned the export of wheat that year, which led to a quadrupling of the spot price of wheat. Some countries are not hedged. You can guess which countries are not hedged when you look at what happened that year. Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Syria. The consequent dramatic increase in the cost of food, well, let's just say it's been a reliable predictor of revolutions since the French Revolution, when wheat prices quadrupled in the two years before the revolution. We're going to see a lot of that this century. In fact, in the next couple of months, we're at high risk of seeing a significant increase in the cost of basic foodstuffs, thanks to the COVID crisis. India and Vietnam, the two big exporters of rice in Asia, have just capped or banned exports of rice until they see what's happening in their domestic economies. We don't know how long we can last with that, but it probably won't be long. So we're on the brink of seeing exactly this thing happening again this year. With the two other big developments I think worth saying are the Task Force of Climate-Related Financial Disclosure which has been extraordinarily influential on saying that we need to have disclosure about climate risks. Now, most of the focus in that disclosure has been around mitigation risks. I'm going to say stranded assets in coal or other fossil fuels, potentially. 
the risk of it. But of course, what we're now talking about is understanding and needing to look at disclosures around adaptation and resilience issues. The insurance industry in the UK has been doing a lot of work on this and start beginning to share that information to better understand the risk of extremely volatile weather, which we're beginning to experience. Some of you may know, know for example, that in coastal property in Florida, the reinsurance industry has basically withdrawn. A Republican state um, government decided to set up a government-owned reinsurance corporation that now provides the reinsurance for Mario Lago and other juicy properties on the coast of Miami because the private sector will no longer do so. An ideological perspective has decided to trump private sector real politic assessment of the risks involved. And as a result, Florida's credit rating has been notched down a couple of uh, notches by at least Moody's because of that extra risk they're carrying and the potential for dramatic impact on the state's finances should the kinds of storms that are keeping reinsurance companies out materialize. Risk, risk, risk. So that's the background. And the second thing I want to take you to is what Michael talked about earlier. In response to this risk, in response to an increasing appreciation on the part of institutional investors in particular about these risks, we have seen the growth of at least one thematic instrument, and there are a few others to respond to Michael's comment beginning to appear. The green bonds are a simple, I'm going to call them an icebreaker instrument. They uh, smell, walk and talk like an ordinary bond. They have the same risk and yield profile largely, but they have a bonus feature, which is the proceeds are allocated to investments that are seen as being consistent with or in line with addressing the Paris Agreement or addressing environmental challenges. So it's a very simple instrument. Any kind of organization can issue one of these. You'll see on the chart in front of you, there's everything from development banks to sovereigns, about 50 billion, uh, euros of sovereigns outstanding now uh, to asset-backed securities. It's a simple idea. It has led to a whole bunch of other developments on the back of it. In terms of instruments, we've seen green loans now grow quickly. We've seen some other related thematic bonds, social bonds, sustainability bonds, which are offshoots of the market. We've seen retail products beginning to appear, at least six or possibly seven, I think, uh, banks around the world have rolled out essentially green deposit schemes where they promise to allocate their money to renewable energy or other such things for people who are putting in term deposits or, or various sorts. So there's a, already a little bit of um, innovation going on here. We see in the equity space people begin to set up green funds now, not solar, not property, but cross-cutting green funds. We've also seen a range of uh, public sector institutions roll out specific support for this sector on the basis that this, look, this looks like a fiscally efficient way of pushing funding towards the right kinds of investments. So we've seen credit guarantee tools, first loss provisions tailored around the broader green theme. The Green Climate Fund is looking for how, ways it can support aggregation vehicles in this space and so on. We have also seen in the last couple of years, I guess, um, a growing appreciation that a crisis will hit one day, and hence the greater discussion about resilience. Well, we woke up 
a couple of months ago or longer, depending which country you're in, in the middle of a crisis. There's some questions arising out of this crisis as we now are experiencing exactly what has been predicted by the IPCC Health Committee for 30 years. Of course, they didn't predict the particular virus. They didn't predict the fact that it would probably hit people of an older age in this case, unlike SARS, that hit people more of the 30 to 45 year old. But they did predict a global pandemic and pandemic, and they're saying it's going to happen again. So as I sit here in my kitchen, looking over the back garden where I've been sitting most days for the last uh, eight weeks, I'm thinking, are we in the middle of a rupture? Are we in the middle of something that is so significant of a change that it will make us rethink our systems and address the kinds of challenges that we need to address to minimise the risk of catastrophic versions of what we're beginning to experience? I mean, by the way, I'm not suggesting we're going to stop pandemics or other kinds of climate shocks this century. I happen to think they're baked in now. That's the amount of warming we've got in the system. We're on a race, and this is best explained in the IPCC 1.5 degree report of 2018, we're on a race to avert catastrophic shocks, which we won't be able to recover from. That's why we need to reduce emissions 50% in the next 10 years, effectively as an inoculation against catastrophe. But in the meantime, we do need to manage what it is that we have created in our world, inadvertently, not necessarily consciously, despite the few odd future thinkers that were telling us about this many years ago. We're already seeing a lot of innovation in policy. Goodness knows, helicopter money in the US has to be called an innovation. Whether you agree it's the right innovation or not is a separate story. While I've been talking about it, and I know some of the people on this particular webinar have been talking about it for some time, seeing it in practice is pretty amazing. Health systems innovation. We are in a period of innovation on health systems, which is the same as being in a war. We will learn a lot out of this particular first half of the year, and we'll need to apply that going forward. Industrial supply chain management, keeping industry alive. We're learning a lot. We haven't had a shutdown of this kind. Well, frankly, probably not since the crashes in the Western countries of the 1880s. The Great Depression didn't see as such a shutdown. Now it's a different kind of shutdown. Fair enough, a lot to be learned. We are learning that it's about climate change. That's what the scientists are now beginning to say. Zoonotic diseases and the relationship between environmental degradation have to be something that we focus on going forward. This is one key reason why we need to raise the agenda around biodiversity and protection of biodiversity and rebuilding of biodiversity. We need healthy ecosystems, not ones that are falling apart. And now, of course, the symptom of that will be WWF will have to raise less money to protect the rhino because a healthy ecosystem would ensure that we are able to see the growth of these kinds of animals. That's one agenda. The second agenda, we need to be thinking about the application of this crisis to other kinds of climate shocks. We've had some strong regional ones recently. We've had famine and, and flood and fire. I was in Australia at Christmas. It seems a long way away now when we thought that was going to be the biggest climate incidence of the year. It was certainly very dire in Australia. We expect to see, as a result of uh, collapse of agriculture in places, 
famines unless the world cooperates very closely and clearly around food distribution. There's another one brewing in Ethiopia, for example, separate to COVID. We know that climate resilience has to now becoming, become an overarching theme for our thinking about our society, our economy, our industry, and our ecosystems. This is much more than coastal defences. This is about thinking of stewardship of the planet we live on, essentially. We also know to our cost that change is not linear. Now, no, um, any number of academics could have told us this, but it's very different when you're experiencing it, I can tell you. We're beginning to appreciate, at least in some markets, Europe, the UK, etc., that we need to build back better. The European discussion is dominated now by a discussion of how to make green stimulus works. How it works, though, is still a matter of some uncertainty. So for that, I want to take you to the beginning of a recovery agenda. We know that in this particular recovery, we've got to do a few things quickly, mainly jobs. We've had so many people out of work from the services sector, a sector which is not going to revive very quickly as people only tentatively leave their homes, go to restaurants, it'll take a while, that we need to make sure we soak up some of that employment unless we want to consign ourselves to an era of social disruption again. We have to avoid that. We've learned at our cost over the last 10 years, failing to address the disadvantage of the poor can have dire political consequences. I think you know what I mean, but to make it very clear, the rise of populism, when you have an extraordinary problematic lower half of the population is a given. Unless we can share the fruits of recovery adequately in some form, we're going to have a problem. Jobs, jobs, jobs let alone we need our young people to have some kind of future. In the environmental space, there are many things we can do. Climate scientists will tell you that we need to ensure environmental re restoration becomes a priority. Afforestation. In Europe and the UK and the US, we have a huge energy efficiency agenda. There are challenges in designing these schemes, but at the end of the day, it's a simple quotient. If we can significantly roll out energy efficiency programs in homes and commercial areas, we can achieve the IPCC target, which involves emission reductions that come 40% from the built environment. But without a significant drive, we won't do it. Well, the beauty of this particular area of climate action is it soaks up jobs. Construction industry can scale up quickly subject to the right kinds of incentives people to do it and measures. I'm not going to go into the detail, I'm just saying it's an extraordinary opportunity to create jobs and meet climate objectives and for householders lower our energy bills. Win-win-win I'd call that. Solar rooftops have been seen to scale up job creation very quickly in markets like California and Australia and Germany. There is scope for a renewed drive around that. We need to be looking at what kinds of social protection measures we can build in and keep them going. I think in the US we've learned to our cost that when people don't have access to free healthcare in an emergency, they will keep working. That is why the deaths in the US are dominated by the poor and by Afro-Americans who've come from service jobs, who have had to keep working despite feeling well 
or keep working without protection in a high-risk environment. They are the ones that are dying. Of course, for the rest of us who are lucky enough not to have to, to make those kinds of choices, we are still at risk and in fact we're at heightened risk because the pandemic cannot be controlled unless all parts of society participate. It's in our interests to make sure that they feel, people who aren't currently feeling they can, can go to a hospital. It is in their interest, our interest, to make sure that they can get access to some kind of sick pay so they don't, aren't forced to keep going to work to feed their children. These are really substantial, essential social protection measures in a crisis like this, a crisis, let me reiterate, that will be repeated again and again. So what does that look for the construction of our social infrastructure for the future? What can we learn out of that? The same measure is related to small and medium-sized enterprises who have suffered and again leading to a lot of incredible distress by small businesses. We've taken in some economies very good, very interesting measures to be able to prop up that sector and support it during the crisis. We have to learn. Luckily, we have a live laboratory. In many countries, there's, well, there's a variety of approaches around the world. Most people are doing something, they're doing it very differently. Let's study and learn. This is, in a sense, part of the broader just transition theme. How do we transform our societies to be low carbon, but to be also climate resilient without leaving the poor behind, but rather making sure they can come with us, improving equity and so on going forward. We have an opportunity still in the green bond market, my prime area of work, to grow sovereign green bonds around recovery and resilience, using the reporting and transparency mechanisms inherent in that market to provide confidence to citizens not just investors, that the funds are being used wisely, not unfortunately, which can sometimes be a criticism of this market. So how do we do this? Well, we've done a few things which can serve us well. We've already passed in Europe, and the UK government has indicated it expects to adopt disclosure rules. Whether they're fully mandatory in the UK, you've seen some argument in the press recently, is another matter. In Europe, these will be have a relative level of mandatory application. Financial markets participants will need to disclose climate risks on their portfolio. Climate risks is going to be expanded to include resilience risks. Is your toy factory in a flood zone, for example? As well as sustainable investments they're making to balance that out. There's a new EU taxonomy that I've spent the larger part of 18 months working on which is providing guidance for this particular sector. This, these rules will not only apply to investors, they'll apply to corporations, banks, and of course any companies seeking finance in the European Union and wanting to claim some level of sustainability or green flavour. Inherent in this whole taxonomy process is something that most people haven't realised. We're introducing a conceptual shift to assessing what are the right kinds of investments? Relative measures, which have dominated national-based discussions of what to do around climate for the last 20 years. We will be X percent better than before. We will be best in class. Do not apply in the taxonomy. We have shifted to absolute global measures, 
derived from the IPCC 1.5 degree report and from the International Energy Agency's sub-2 degree model. You will see measures in there that are argued to not be European specific, but to be globally applicable because of the global nature of the problem around emissions, for example. There are some big issues. For example, in 2018, the executive director of the International Energy Agency came out and said, to meet the objectives of the Paris Agreement, sub two degree objectives, we cannot be building any more new unabated fossil fuel. This was a dramatic announcement, I have to say, given that we spent the last 20 years believing that some form of unabated fossil fuel, methane, gas, would be part of this transition. He was saying we cannot, under the IEA modelling, see any way that new fossil fuel can be part of this mix and we will need to start running down our existing fossil fuel assets much faster than we thought. You will see this exemplified or rather uh, brought in to the EU taxonomy. A tough threshold of 100 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour would allow gas with carbon capture and sequestration, but not without carbon capture and sequestration. Deeply challenging for the energy policies of many countries around the world, which are claimed to be in accord with the Paris Agreement. The European Union announced last week it would now begin an inquiry into all its support for gas in the light of its new and more stringent climate targets. That will have a knock-on effect to investments in the gas industry. Now remember I said earlier, policy transition risk. This is a good example of where investors will start looking differently about their portfolios as a result of a heightened risk of action in this particular area. This will mean that companies that have substantial businesses in these areas need to be assessing the forward risk to their activities of government action. Will they be constrained, will they not, is a discussion. Now, I'm not suggesting that this will definitely happen. Politics is a volatile game, but it is risk. In, there are guidelines in transport, there are guidelines in waste and energy, in buildings, in land use, in manufacturing. There is a strong emphasis on investments that enable the shift to a uh, low carbon and climate resilient economy, including a whole lot of component manufacturers. If you're a triple glaze window manufacturer in Torino, you're in under the taxonomy. Not a lot of further evidence required except to prove that that's what you produce. There are many features like that. Steel industry, aluminium industry, concrete, plastics and chemicals are all covered. These are all industrial sectors that are needed for the future. They simply need now to be shifted to a more sustainable footing from the point of view of climate. So we have that in place now as a major artifact. We're now looking at the next stage of development. We have to expand the mitigation guidance, shipping, aviation, in a context where many airlines are about to enter state control thanks to the nature of bailouts that are being included, including Nor Norwegian airline in, Nor in Norway. We now have an opportunity to look at what we might do with aviation from the point of view of public good. You'll note that the French government in its bailout for KLM Air France has insisted that a decarbonisation strategy 
be part of the future development of that airline group. That will become common. What that looks like needs a bit of work. You'll see more coming through. You will see work coming through on the mining industry, not a sector that is normally seen as part of a green or climate agenda. But we need to understand that if we're to achieve this extraordinary transition of our economy, we are going to need a lot of minerals. I'm going to call them strategically important minerals for the transition. Yes, things like cobalt and lithium, but also copper and aluminium. What do we prioritise? What do we make part of this transition? And of course, this helps build a much greater understanding of the kind of policy measures governments can take and need to take as well. In the resilience sector, we do have an immediate agenda, which is overdue, about making infrastructure more resilient, hardening infrastructure. We learned that out of Hurricane Sandy. We need to, for example, subway lines around the world on coastal cities, Mumbai, London, New York, need to be designed to be able to get up and work again quickly after they're flooded. It's not so much seawalls as rubberizing the electrics. So you can pump out the, uh, the tunnels and start operating the next day. Cities in general are going to need a lot of this, particularly low-lying cities that dominate the world, whether that be Shanghai in China, which is highly exposed to the typhoons that are now beginning to occur at its latitude, to Jakarta that is already sinking sometimes 20 centimetres a year in places because of the taking out of water from the aquifer, let alone having to face the challenge of sea level rise. In our agriculture and food systems, our climate is changing. Where we've grown maize in the past, we probably will not be able to grow maize in the future. This is deeply challenging for countries like Mexico. We have to start planning for this and getting ahead of it. We have the opportunity to have a whole IT system based on satellite technology to help farmers adjust for this change and predictive, using predictive modeling to determine the right crops to plant for what volatile weather looks like it's going to do this year, which may be very, very different to what we do next year. This is not how we've run agriculture traditionally in the past. We've been planning the same thing year after year. Of course, this is beginning to change in Northern Europe and Northern US, but we have to also make this change and work in Colombia and India if we're going to head off the threat of food shortages. I've already talked about our whole systems. Some of you may not know that one of the things that Taiwan and China could draw on when the COVID crisis broke out was a redundant set of wings set up after the SARS epidemic that were there ready to be opened up in the course of crisis. Something we need to learn from. Of course, economic resilience. We have learned the hard way that we're all Keynesians now. Every government is doing this. But in the context of a rapid recovery from these, how does it actually work out? Demand stimulation, for example. What sort of automatic stabilizers have we now got to put into the place? to complement the automatic stabiliser of unemployment policy that was introduced in the 1930s. And then finally, ecosystem resilience. My own view is, going back to the link between the environmental degradation and the COVID pathogen, jumping between species, we need a dramatically aggressive process of protecting wild spaces, not just the Amazon, but in Northern United Kingdom and Scandinavia as well, 
and we need to be having a focus on rewilding in many other areas to allow the existing species to be able to flourish. We've seen in the last two years the collapse of some insect systems in Europe. Bees disappearing from Germany. That already threatens dire consequences for agricultural systems. We're on a road to see far worse going forward. However, we have created a market. We have momentum around the idea that green and sustainable finance is the future. Yes, it is dominated by the US, Canada, Europe, Japan, Australia, but we already have the market created by government fiat in China, full of incentives to get this going. And it is not true that it doesn't exist in emerging markets. Whenever we speak to institutional investors in India, in Brazil and Colombia, we find strong appetite for this. The products are simply not available for them to invest. We need to generate the deal flow to grow this. We can use our taxonomy work to guide the direction to expand this and in that process also provide guidance for those governments that may not have the capacity to figure out the solutions going forward. This doesn't solve everything. At the end of the day, the key thing to solve is how we construct financially viable solutions at the ground in places like Lagos, Sao Paulo and Jakarta. There are many options in front of us because we've been doing this for 150 years in the West. We simply haven't been applying it to green. I see this as the opportunity of the millennia. For the next 30 years, to make our switch to low carbon and now to resilient economies in the context of this crisis, it's going to cost us, it's going to require investment of, let me quickly correct myself, of between 90 and 150 trillion dollars US. If we are able to deploy that capital, this is the biggest change in stimulus in history. This will create not only low carbon, climate resilient economies, economies better able to weather the shocks we're experiencing now, it will also create jobs and growth for the next 30 years to soak up the increasing population before we stabilize. We know we will stabilize global population by 2050. We have all the historical evidence to show that, but we have to survive till then. And we have to make this work for the good of all. It will require regulatory engagement. It will require governments to act. I don't believe this can happen by the private sector alone, but it can be driven by capital and by capital markets. That's the opportunity. Green bonds are simply evidence that this will work. Just the first part of evidence. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sean. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Simon Mills. Um, uh, I'm uh, an associate uh, at Zien. And Michael's asked me just to say a few words at the, the close of today's seminar um, about the uh, forthcoming uh, conference, the party COP26, which was due to take place in Glasgow um, at the end of this year, but which has uh, been postponed until early next year. Um, Perhaps I would say a few words about exactly what the COP is and, and how it's it, 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 it's come into being. 
the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, was an international environmental treaty which was adopted at the first Earth Summit in Rio uh, back in 1992, um, and it was actually signed by all uh, member states. Now, in those days, uh, George H. Bush uh, was president, Boris Yeltsin uh, was the Russian president, and John Major was the UK Prime Minister. Um, the Berlin Wall hadn't long come down, and the world was really uh, very full of optimism at the time. Now, the UNFCCC aims to stabilize greenhouse gas concentration in the in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent uh, dangerous climate change. Um, and although it didn't actually contain binding limits on greenhouse gas emissions for individual countries and it, it didn't have any enforcement mechanisms, it did lay down a framework for the development of international treaties, which are called protocols or agreements, that would actually help develop um, binding targets. And these protocols or agreements are developed through annual conferences of the parties or, or COPs. Now, Glasgow was to have been the, the 26th meeting of the conference of the parties, hence COP26. Um, but the question is, you know, what use are these COPs? Well, Two really uh, stand out. Um, in 1997, COP3 met in Kyoto, and the result was the Kyoto Protocol. Um, and this outlined greenhouse gas emission reduction obligations for developed countries, along with what came to be known as the, the, the Kyoto Mechanism. Um, such as emissions training, uh, trading, uh, clean development mechanisms, and, and joint implementation. Now, the US initially actually agreed to sign uh, the, the Kyoto pro Protocol. Uh, that was under President Clinton. Um, but this was never actually ratified by the US Senate. And on the election of President George W. Bush in 2000, um, policy changed and, and by 2016 the US was the only nation in the world not to uh, have signed up. Um, in 2015, COP21 uh, met in Paris and the result was the Paris Agreement. Now, the Paris Agreement's goal is to keep the global average temperature below two degrees centigrade. And to achieve this, each country has to determine, plan, and regularly report on the contribution that it's undertaking to mitigate global warming. Um, the Obama administration actually agreed to sign up to this, and this time the treaty was ratified uh, by the Senate. However, the COP, the Paris COP, took uh, place shortly before the US election, and in June um, 2017, uh, US President Donald Trump announced his intention to withdraw the United States from the agreement. Um, so why is COP26 such a big deal? Well, it stands out for three reasons. Firstly, um, it's going to take place in the year when all countries are actually asked to submit their new long-term goals under the, the, the Paris Agreement. So ambition to actually address the global climate emergency is, is going to be very high on the uh, agenda. 
Um, secondly, it, it's going to have to finish the work that COP25 was unable to conclude, such as uh, setting out the rules for an international carbon market. Um, and finally, COP26 is going to come you know, perhaps a, a couple of months after the US presidential election with all the potential implications that this is going to have for US climate policy and UK, uh, US uh, participation. So, um, what can we expect from, from COP26? Well, as I've said, COP26 has been postponed uh, to next year due to the COVID virus. Um, but it's worth noting, as Sean has said, that the pandemic is playing havoc with economies around the world. And a lot of noise is currently being made about low carbon, uh, green growth, green quantitative easing and, and green incentives. Um, coupled with this, the oil market is currently in turmoil. And obviously the results of the, the US election are, are very far from certain. Um, so as a result, I, I suspect that what we're going to see for, for COP26 is a, a really vicious rearguard action by, by oil, oil producing nations that are, are seeking to, to protect their interests. Um, China is, is certainly going to, to play a, a pivotal role, both in leading actions, but also more importantly, in actually creating alliances, particularly amongst uh, developing nations and and with the EU. So are we actually going to see um, any major um, things come out of COP26? Well, I suppose the pessimist in me thinks that, you know, with 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 oil in the doldrums and, and the global economy in turmoil, there is going to be pressure uh, on politicians to drive growth, any sort of growth, uh, as hard as they can. So is is green growth going to be, be sidelined? Um, or, you know, or even worse, are we going to see a retreat from internationalism and, and perhaps the establishment of, of protection protectionism, um, uh, you know, hidden under a green veneer. So you've got border carbon taxation and, and other barriers to trade uh, put in place. Well, yeah, the answer is I don't know. Um, and, and we'll really have to see what uh, what happens uh, early next year when when COP26 does actually finally, finally meet. Over yes, to you, I'm, Michael. Well, actually, I was just noticing here there were a couple of questions, uh, Sean. I, I, are you available to answer a couple? Uh, of course, Michael. Uh, yeah, uh, we've got an interesting question here from Vikong. Uh, measures, corporate travel contributes a lot to greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, what measures can we put in place? And what do you think is the best way to curb unnecessary travel, especially now as we've seen how much unnecessary travel there may have been? Well, uh, you know, on a behavioral level, there's no doubt that the math rapid global training program called the COVID crisis is getting us used to using GoToWebinar, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, and other, other instruments very quickly, or Tencent meeting in China, if you're in China. And uh, that does help a lot, you know, and I, I'm actually hoping that some of that will linger. That is, that is one way of doing it. However, 
I don't want to put too much emphasis on the individual when it comes to aviation. Uh, I, I think the way these things tend to work is a bit like when you get the flu, you get over it and then you're back to your old self. There's of course a big risk, let's face it, a likelihood that three years down the track, we'll have forgotten a lot of what's happened in this particular crisis. So we need to plan during the crisis for what might we might decide to work at keeping in practice. That is things like meetings along these lines, distributed working and so on. The fact that this is a crisis is going to have a few lumps in it. In other words, you've got to manage our interaction probably until a vaccine becomes available globally to risk a major resurgence of the virus will force us to do this a bit. The real job, however, is to what to do with the aviation industry. And in nearly every area we're looking at, we need to be thinking systemically. So those of us that are investors in particular, or regulators, have got to look at the bigger picture of where is aviation going to go? And for that, I'm going to say, we might reduce aviation a little bit. Remember, it was going to grow dramatically over the next 30 years with things like webinars. But there are other things we can do. Short haul aviation contributes 75% of global aviation emissions. That's flights between here in Glasgow or here in Brussels. I'm in London right now. Those kinds of um, transport options can be a lot of the time replaced with high speed rail, which should be now in the uh, infrastructure plans of all countries. As China has shown us last 30 years, you can do a hell of a lot very quickly, last 10 years really. And if you've been on the Chinese fast rail system, you'll know it is amazing, far more stable than the Eurostar. I can put my mobile phone in the window and it does not shake off, for example. So it's provable. Second, a shift to bioav gas for long haul, a shift to battery aircraft. So two, two ways of looking at it. Okay. Look to the system. Sean, uh, we're quite short of time, so if we could be short and sharp here. Uh, I've got a question here. With so much cheap government money being spread due to COVID-19, why would somebody go to the extra expense of green bonds, i.e. do you foresee a global downturn in green bond issuance? No, I don't. Uh, we expect green bonds to boom at the moment. Um, remember that green bonds have a number of advantages already financially in secondary markets. They're a premium product. A lot of people are getting slightly lower prices, but most importantly, they're wedding corporations and issuers to the sustainability agenda of investors. That's why they're being done. And if there was ever a time to signal the sustainability of your business strategy, now is one of the times to do it. So we actually are expecting and hearing that it will be a significant growth. That's the debt capital market people are telling us around the world um, in all sorts of countries. Of course, the instinct part will be the extension into what I'm calling resilience bonds. But some of these are COVID bonds. In China, we've seen 300 COVID bonds already. There's going to be a lot. Sean, um, quickly in a few words, uh, perhaps just uh, short words, how is ESG adoption progressing in developing countries in contrast to the developed world? Well, there's no doubt it's driven by where the big investors are, and that is in the developed world. But in some markets, you have a very strong appreciation of ESG issues. Malaysia, for example, where the regulators have been pushing this issue hard, linked a little bit to Islamic finance, but they're trying to bring Islamic finance and ESG together. You've seen countries like uh, Mexico, where the investment community is acutely aware of ESG issues. So I would say it's growing, but there is no doubt that in the markets, it's being driven 
by the big global investors, the likes of GPIF, MBIM, AXA, Allianz. Sean, is ESG adoption impacting renewable energy transition? And we've got a sub-question with sort of the same about hydrogen. To a certain degree, I think it is. I think that there is a bias on behalf of a number of investors to those investments they see as less likely to be at risk in the future because of reasons other than, than history, credit history. And clearly, policy transition is an ESG issue in this particular circumstance as an e-issue. And that is helping capital availability for the renewable energy sector. I absolutely expect this to play out in the hydrogen sector in the next five years. But it'll be the green hydrogen sector that'll benefit most. That is hydrogen generated from renewable energy. Got an interesting question from Martin Watkins. We've seen self-centered national interests dominate the supply of uh, PPE and ventilators, including US pressure applied to 3M and Roche. Given this behavior, to what extent do you believe the EU, ECB and others central banks will focus on short-term economic recovery and fail to seize the opportunity to address ecological climate needs? That's from Martin Watkins. We're unusual that we, in recent times, have seen two devastating crises. 2008 and the one we're going through. So the appreciation that crises are not one-off are likely to be recurring. Now, unlike in the relatively benign 50 years we had before 2008, I think is there. And that is focusing people's minds on how we inoculate ourselves against future crises. For that reason, at least in economies where we have governments who are looking beyond the next term, looking forward a bit, there is a very powerful and deep conversation about this issue. So I am modestly optimistic, reasonably optimistic, that we're going to see some very interesting action in this space. Uh, Peter Alwyn uh, asks a, a long question. I'm going to boil it down. He's sort of basically saying, uh, on the uptake of green bonds, do you see a difference between uh, the EU and the USA and China in sectors that are taken up? And do you see any difference between uh, private investment or family offices? The family office space is a relatively small side of the capital markets. I can't give you particular detail of that. Um, what I can say is that across those three markets, the application of funds is broadly similar. Renewable energy dominates, but it's in the sort of 33 to 40% category. Um, we see in all of those markets a lot of low carbon transport, such as railways or electric vehicles, and we see a lot of green buildings. And then we see a variety of other sectors. At the tail end, you see my diversity. In China, that tail end is dominated by environmental protection, pollution control measures, whereas in the US, it might be dominated more by local green type of, type of issues. Very good. We've got a lot of other questions, but the time available, I'm just going to throw one last one out. This might be for you, Simon. Uh, how best to use the EU taxonomy as the core tool for recovery plans, given that it is yet to be completed? That's from Henry Eviston. Oh, goodness. Now, um, that, uh, that is a, a, a difficult question. I think that uh, what is going to be interesting going forward is the negotiation between China and the EU with regards to, to taxonomies. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the Chinese are very, very keen to uh, 
um, to uh, uh, gain access to European markets and um, hopefully um, if, if, if taxonomies can be agreed we're going to see a rapid growth in uh, the sale of, of Chinese bonds in, in, in Europe. And the other way around, Simon, where now China is looking like a very good economy to invest in in the context of the crisis. We're still living in Europe because the market's getting going. But yes, we've actually started work on the prep for those negotiations between China and Europe, which have already been agreed to happen. And we will see development. Think of the taxonomy as a procurement plan for the future. <laughs> very, very good. Um, basically, um, I was wondering if uh, both of you could, uh, Simon, would you just mind advancing the slides? Folks, I'm sorry we've run out of time, um, but what I would like to point out is that we are running a number of green finance related webinars. Uh, we're having uh, Nick Baby from E3G on soon and Ben Caldecott from Oxford. And Sean, we hope to bring you back, I hope, uh, for an update maybe in six months or so. Uh, we will be publishing in September the Global Green Finance Index edition number six, um, so please go to greenfinanceindex.net and take the survey. Uh, next slide, Simon. Uh, we are hosting, of course, a couple of other webinars. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking on Thursday with Professor uh, Fan Gong at COVID, uh, sorry, uh, yes, uh, Thursday with Professor Fan Gong at the Economic Road to post-COVID-19 recovery. It'll be absolutely fascinating. Uh, Professor Fan is on the Monetary Policy Committee of China. And on Wednesday, we're going to have COVID-19 and the EU's response with David Doyle, a dear friend of the FS Club. So there's a lot coming forward. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us, but uh, perhaps uh, Simon and I uh, could join together in thanking Sean virtually. So Sean, thank you very much. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for hearing me out. Thank you.